G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. I'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which the podcast is produced down here in Geelong and acknowledge the Wathaurung people as the traditional custodians on the lands that we made. I'd also like to extend those respects wherever you listen to the podcast and acknowledge the traditional custodians on the lands where our podcast guests are joining us from. We know that First Nations Australians have told stories and used stories to pass on wisdom, create connection and share knowledge for tens of thousands of years and hundreds of generations and would like to pay homage to it as part of this podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. So, thank you for joining us as part of the GRDC In Conversation podcast and let's jump into it. Now, normally when we get a swift on any sort of airwaves, the ratings just go through the roof, and who knows if it'll be the same for our next swift. This week, we're welcoming Mark Swift, a Marcus Oldham graduate, Nuffield scholar, farmer, and board director to the GRDC In Conversation podcast. Mark is a family farmer from parks in central west New South Wales. He believes in the ability to grow decent crops in tough conditions has been decades in the making. The different decision points along the way, ensuring that they can farm sustainably and profitably in variable conditions is something that he really is passionate about and it's at the core of the business that they operate. Now, Mark's used to wearing a few different hats. The main one at the moment is overseeing their latest project on the property, which includes grain storage for 10,000 tonnes of grain, including a drying facility. From agropolitics to international experience, Swifty, as we like to call him, or Taylor, is often pondering the hows and whys and looking for opportunities. It's a fascinating chat. So let's jump in. Mark Swift, welcome to the GRDC In Conversation podcast. You're joining quite an esteemed group of people that we've had on so far. And I'm interested, I'm actually, you know what, after meeting you in Perth and hearing you ask various questions, I'm going to say probe different Nuffield scholars. I'm actually very glad that I'm the one asking questions because I think it should be a short podcast if you were asking questions because I'd just be like, well, I actually don't understand that question and I don't know how to answer it. <laughs> Welcome, mate. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to lower the bar if I'm in esteemed company, but no, thanks for having me. Yeah, I questions. I do enjoy asking a few questions, so we might see if we can't reverse the roles here for a bit today. <laughs> Not a chance. This is like media training 101 where it's um yeah just divert divert i'm interested though because you've earned yourself a little bit of a reputation at that nuffield conference as the person who will ask questions and will get quite deep do you sit and mull on questions a lot or does your mind just run the whole time a bit of both it depends how well i know the topic if it's something that I'm, I, there's a question there, but I don't know what I actually want to ask or I've got to articulate it in a way that my head will have jumped to a point, but then that doesn't make sense. So I've got to then go and I'll start writing out and go, right, how do I make this make sense for not only the other person, but let's say they're an expert in their material and they'll understand that what I'm asking, but then you also need other people to know what you're asking as well. So sometimes you've just got to craft that question and, and that can take a bit of time. I'm not, I don't do enough of it to just be able to wing it. We can probably come back to the nitty gritty of your Nuffield, but I want to understand how difficult was it for you to just choose one topic and how long had you written it out, rewritten it out to actually decide on what you're going to go and study? Yeah, pinning it down probably wasn't too hard. I wanted to ask a big question. What was it going to be was, well, I was working in ag policy from a grassroots perspective with New South Wales farmers at that point, and I could just see issues coming at it. So the, the, everyone's talking about productivity growth, and I'm just watching these rules from at the societal level just keep tapping it down. So we're, in the one hand, society's saying, well, we need you to grow more, but we don't want you to actually have the tools that allow you to grow more. I'm like, well, this is a position that's untenable. We can't do both of these things. And so I'm like, right, well, how do we manage that contradiction? I didn't really understand the risk component. So that sort of came later in that it really is just all, all the precautionary principles is, which is what I studied, 
is really just a risk management tool at the societal level. It's society going, I don't quite understand what you're doing here. Can we just calm it down a bit until we're comfortable with where things are at? Comfort usually comes, however, with a crisis. We've run out of something and we need you to give you more tools so that you can go forth. And hopefully in that time space, people have got enough understanding and enough comfort for whatever the technology is that we're hoping to use or utilise to, you know, just be comfortable with it. But, you know, hunger is a real motivator. People tend to forget about some of the other stuff that they're worried about in that space. Um, so then back to your question about pinning it down, that's a topic with an awful lot in it, so I didn't need to pin it down. It could take me wherever I wanted. Because well, I was reading your exact summary, and so you did your scholarship back in 2012. Just off the, around that time was the live export ban that happened into Indonesia. It was interesting looking at your exact summary where you're talking about things like food security and whatnot. Actually, you could overlay that and republish it today, and that executive summary is still so critically important looking at those key issues of how to, the decisions that Australia makes actually impact food security in other countries. I think that's the really hard part about having the done the training that I've had in that space and then looking at us going and doing some really, to be honest, quite callous things um, as a nation when we go and say, no, well, you can't have this food. Nothing more confronting than being in the Middle East when your nation has just said, no, sorry, you can no longer have your main protein source because we've decided that no one in this neck of the woods deserves it because we've had an incident in one part of that market. That was seriously challenging because... They had some of the best facilities I'd ever seen. You could walk through their kill chain, watch the whole process go along. The livestock, that their own domestic livestock were seriously quiet, like hand-red type quiet, sitting on the back of a ute basically with sideboards and not escaping. So I found it quite confronting that we just lumped the Middle East into a market because of an issue with Bahrain that en- then ended up in Pakistan. But we do that repeatedly with with other things australia as a, an exporter needs to see itself as a you know we've got our own natural variability in our environment to then go and put man-made issues in front of that as well it's we're playing a political game but the people who bear the consequences are not australians they're well except for on the producer side because we've limited their markets but on the consumer side it's not the australian consumer who pays for this it's the international consumer yeah, it's fascinating. I haven't read your whole report. I read that literally the executive summary and I was like, yeah, it's fascinating. And it's the part which I think I end up coming back to. I know nowhere near enough about it. So let's park the Nuffield piece because I'm interested to understand how that international <laughs> exposure has shaped you and your perspectives. You have to read the other 15,000 words in there. Well, we'll just create a podcast out of it over an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to reread it then. Okay, perfect. What stage did you decide you wanted to be a farmer, Mark? I reckon I've only ever had a couple of days where I haven't wanted to be a farmer. So I grew up on a farm at Trangy with my, my family. No longer farm with them. I'm now at Parks with my wife's family. But yeah, look, I've just enjoyed it. I have enjoyed the intellectual challenge. I enjoy the physicality. I guess I've never really considered many other things. Not seriously. I've, I've seriously considered many things. And I'd probably lucky enough to be of a disposition where I could probably throw my hand at anything. I just happened to have thrown it at farming. Tell me a little bit about the farming operation that you guys are running today. So we're cropping roughly 4,000 hectares arable. I think we're a bit over that at the moment. We are summer and winter cropping, which is a bit strange for central New South Wales, particularly this far south in central New South Wales. We've been in that mix of summer and winter crops since 2010 was our first, 11, sorry, was our first serious attempt. We had some sorghum in and it, you know, doing everything wrong, great season, still managed to pluck five tonne of the hectare. And we only just beat that record again as an average in 2020, I think it was. But what's enabled that ability to step into the summer cropping thing has really been our farming systems. We've been controlled traffic for an awfully long time now, I think 20, 2006. We started there, no-till, similar start date. Min-till was probably 10 years prior to that. So there's a, a real background of what would be, once upon a term, considered conservation farming. We've yeah run good fertiliser programs, liming programs for, for quite some time as well now. 
And yeah, I think it's just the, it's all those little bits that have added up to the ability to do that. We also run a, a fair pulse program. So almost any year we'll, we will grow pulses. We do have a rule around pulses though. You grow, you grow many pulses if you can, because if you don't, you will have a pricing and or production problem with the pulse that you grow. So we try and have a bit of a shotgun approach there. We can't pick the seasons necessarily. We do know that in some years you shouldn't grow some pulses, so we try to pick and choose, and we're probably learning a bit more about that now as we go along. Who's involved in the business with you guys? So my brother-in-law, Bruce Watson, who will be familiar to GRDC. Uh, he's on the Northern Panel. My wife, Katrina Swift. So they're, they're the principals of the second generation, I guess, or the next generation, I guess you'd say. Uh, my sister-in-law, Karina, is also involved at an admin level, and my parents-in-law, Jim and Janelle Watson, they really did hand over the a large bulk of the reins and responsibility quite some time ago. So we're very fortunate for that. They've let us, given us enough rope, but then also haven't pulled the reins in too hard if we've made a mistake. They've let us sort our own problems out. In addition to that, though, we um, we presently have five full-time staff, two mechanics, two farmhands, and I've just put on another guy who's helping me with project management around or and operations of a, a silo complex we've got on. There's a lot of people here, but that diversity means that, as in the diversity of crops and the seasons, it just means that we've got to have a lot of stuff and a lot of people. A couple of things. Let's divide into two. The decision back in 2010 to bring summer cropping into it, was there something that was seen elsewhere that showed that it was possible or how did that come about? Our first attempt was in 2007 or eight. one of those two. We were too late. We didn't plant until December, sorry, late December, early January, and the crop didn't finish. And that was just looking at, yeah, you know, water use efficiencies, what's possible, and that was our first attempt, but not really serious because we hadn't actually prepared it with a fallow or anything. It was just sort of does. And it did better than it, you know, deserved to. Uh, 2010, or 2011, we were coming off the back of 2010, and 2010 was just a disaster of a year for us from a harvest perspective. We were still harvesting on Australia Day. You know, they, the crops weren't bad, but we'd also had one day, we had one frost, I think it was late-ish to September. Not a bad one, like minus one, but we had wheat that was doing five tonne under the trees, doing a tonne to the hectare as a paddock average. So that was pretty heartbreaking as well. We knew we had to get away from a single event being able to dictate our cash flow so much. And that year we just happened to get two single events, one being a frost that nailed about 800 hectares of wheat, and then the rainfall event, or rainfall events, I should say, at the other end of the spectrum that, that really punished us as well. So that was just, right, can we do it and should we do it? We were getting the push between frost and wet harvests because our best harvests were also our wettest harvests or our best crop years were our wettest harvests. So we, we just needed to start looking at what can we do with it. And it wasn't, we knew that even then that we weren't going to be able to do it every year. Couldn't grow winter crops every year either. How have you managed that? You, you mentioned, so five full-time staff now. Is that something that you like load up coming into the busy times of year where you've got to sow summer crops and get ready for harvest, especially in a yeah some of these more volatile years where it can be push and shove? We're still learning. I mean, yeah, okay, we're a decade in now, but we started from the perspective of let's not bite off more than we can choose. So for, a, oh, for the first five years, we didn't change mechanically anything and I don't even think we had any additional staff so it was very much but the areas were small too we were a couple of hundred hectares and that there was an understanding in that that you couldn't just go and turn it on one we needed to learn how to grow the crops because we also grow mung beans as well and we've had a crack at cotton but we'll come back to why we don't grow cotton so it was very much just a well let's see what we can do within the constraints that we have without starting to run into anything like capital-wise. We did make a significant investment in planting technology, but even that was experimental. So we went and started playing around with precision planting in 2015, I think it was. We bought a toolbar that was capable of taking that technology in 2014. 2015 was our first year. So we were just sort of creeping our way into it, I guess you'd say, Ollie. And then as we 
started to compound a bit of success. We'd say, right, we'll, we'll go a little bit further. 2016, we loaded up pretty heavily on the summer crop. It was our first crack at cotton as well. So we were nearly half the program with summer crop. We'd really ramped it up by that stage. We, we were confident enough that we could make things work and we had better tech to go with it. But then, so the 16, 17 summer was a disaster here though. It rained until we had good moisture coming out of 16 and then ran into the 17 summer and it stopped running on about the, I think it was the 10th of, 10th or 15th of January. And we basically burnt an entire profile in the next six weeks with, I think, an average temperature in the 38 degree range, the average average maximum temp for that period. So we just ran out of water. Everything got baked and we put our tail between our legs for a year or two after that. 17 wasn't a disaster. Again, terrible growing season, but didn't perform as bad and then we started to see a bit more success so we we're a bit more ginger now we're probably a bit more comfortable with when to not grow a crop particularly the summer crops we need to get a bit better on our winter pulses so it's we there is no system for us it's where do we think we are and what do we think we're going to get for the season and then we will say yes or no like we we have a few go no go triggers and if we don't meet enough of the goes, well, you just let it sit in fallow. Can you talk us through some of the that decision-making process that you guys go through as a management team to actually arrive at those decisions of are we going in, how hard are we going, or not going at all? The real formative part of that probably came back in about oh, 2012, I'd guess. I'd done a fair bit of work on our rainfall analysis over this environment in a I think it was 20, 2008, 2009, somewhere in there, back when I was still pretty handy with a spreadsheet, and started to go, well, right, what are the seasons that really cut out look like? And it wasn't just rainfall. It was like, right, let's link these rainfall to what we understood for the climatic patterns of the time. And the bomb haven't done a bad job of actually reverse engineering where they didn't have data. And where they have had data, like you can get El Nino data back to, I think it's 1910, IOD data, so positive or negative IODs back to, I think it's the 60s. You could probably guess prior events to that because IOD does seem to have a pretty good signature. And I'm sure if I could get a hold of someone in the, the Bureau, they could probably reverse engineer some of it too to confirm or, or dispel some of that. But then what that meant was, right, we understand what we have in from a soil comp- soil water from our capacitant probe data. So we know roughly what we've got. And then it's right, right, well, what's our minimum threshold for a summer crop, for a winter crop before we'll go in? And then we start looking at seasonal forecasts and you don't treat them as gospel, but if you've already got a, a full profile, you don't need a lot of help. And this season's really proven that one out. We didn't need a lot of rainfall, but even the way that rain falls is important. I won't get too far ahead of myself. So if we've got a full bucket and a good forecast, we're going to go pretty hard. What that means is, you know, mainly nitrogen, to be honest, um, and we'll probably pick longer longer season varieties or, yeah, particularly in the canola hybrid space, we'll push for hybrids in that space. If we think it's going to be too wet, we start to look at our pulse program and go, right, we're probably better off with favours rather than chickpeas. And then we probably don't change our upfront program too much in terms of nutrition or anything. It's really just these are our options and then what does the road look like? I guess at the the no-go perspective, how dry are we and what's the forecast? Because I can have no moisture at the start of the season. If I've got a negative IOD forecast, it doesn't really matter. That was the 2016 scenario. Coming into sowing of 2016, we didn't have that much moisture, but the forecast was for a negative IOD. We went pretty hard. In fact, we only got half the program in because it ended up getting too wet and we, we had intentions for a summer program behind it. I don't think just because you've got no starting profile, that's not necessarily a good enough reason to not sow anything. And then if you're in between, well, then it's a sort of a suck it and see. Probably the place where we are now is if it's no profile and they're talking an El Nino and a, a negative ID, a la this year, had we had no bucket of water to work with, it would have been pretty foolhardy for us to go and put much of a program in. And we don't need a lot of water to grow a crop, but you need something. So... Let's chat about cotton. Why no cotton in your neck of the woods? Because it does, yeah, seem an interesting crop and also I'm presuming equipment and all of those other things come into play here. 
They do. I mean, picking's probably the the, the biggest issue, um, particularly when you're this far away from you know, a good contracting pool. Yeah, you know, there is a bit of cotton on the Lachlan now. It's not quite the stretch that it was seven or eight years ago. However, the biggest issue is drift. We're in our two attempts, depending on where you are in the landscape, really depends on how badly you get hammered. We've had two attempts down in the valley where we've worked because we, we run up to some, some rising country as well, which is sort of on the watershed. And up on the watershed, a lot less drift. Uh, but down in the valley, we got smoked. We abandoned two crops. You could see when harvest stopped and the spray rig started and you could literally, every leaf was hammered after that. So we abandoned both them by oh, sort of 20th of January. We were spraying yeah, them out. Right. So early and hard. We'd like to grow cotton. We'd like to have a crack at it. Um, the other side of it is, though, if you're going to go and pull a 40-ton picker in and it's not on, like, getting a dry land picker down here, that's where it starts to get a bit a bit more difficult because, yeah, the, the pickers that are going to be about are going to be set up for irrigation. It seems the, the, the learnings out of the north is that water rows seem to work better. And so getting a picker that's set up to go on your control traffic and drag it down here, it's a significant cost just to get it here. And then how big an area are we going to have a punt on? If you're not a 1,000 acres or 400 hectares, what's the attraction? Like no one's going to come here to learn how to, for me to do 50 hectares. That's just not going to pay. And then if I don't do it to sort of work with our control traffic, am I going to go and destroy my farming systems because I get a wet harvest, a wet pick mm. with a 40-foot picker? Because I promise you, you get off. If we're wet and I get off our tram lines, gear just sinks to the axles. Yeah, gotcha. We have this challenge, and I don't know how we get around it. And I think the other thing about the, the row spacing is all the work we're doing now, our row spacing work for for our summer crops is that water rows actually haven't given us any benefit. I know that's a bit counterintuitive to where particularly sorghum is in the north, but we're actually down to half metre rows now. Same populations, but we just just have more rows, and it's an interesting thing, but that only comes with the ability to do precision planting as well. Conversely, our canola would be considered quite wide rows because it's on the same 50 centimetre row spacing, and I suspect it is starting to, in our best years, limit our yield potential the thing is do i get enough good years to justify the you know the expense of going and having a precision planter that's on maybe 250 mil row spacing because that gets wildly expensive (laughs) and it sounds like that's something that you guys you manage really closely in terms of that justification of equipment and expense to risk and and everything else that can kind of sit within that once upon a time when there was bugger all gear in our yard, yeah, it seemed like we did that. Now we've got all this gear because we've got people and crops and stuff going everywhere. Yeah, it doesn't feel like we're quite as on, on top of it. But when you get a good season, you just need everything. Like we really need a spray rig running around behind the harvesters. Sometimes that also needs to have a planter running as well. So, yeah, it's now not so much about justification of the individual exercise thinking it'll happen every year it's how does it fit into a 10-year program so you you start playing probabilities and this is where Nuffield comes back into it because it it did give me a really good schooling in risk and probabilities and and one of the risks i think we we under underdo in agriculture is the opportunity cost of not getting things right at least in this environment i won't speak for everyone and it's certainly a cost to our business when we don't get things right summer cropping is really a brought to the fore the need for attention to detail. Um, it's improved our winter cropping uh, immensely. And the better we get at the summer cropping, the better our winter cropping gets as a result. But most of that's a function of timing. So I want to yeah, well, ask about that, I guess, the further d- diversification of the business. You've gone, you've brought the summer cropping in as part of it and your project manager. Talk to me about this grain silo complex thing that you guys are looking at or working on. In the midst of what I should be doing instead of talking to you. But anyway, that, that's by the by. <laughs> so what we, 2010, we got hammered so badly with downgraded crop and and just crop losses between loss in test weight and grade depreciation and then grain left on the ground as well. We're like, we can't continue to do this. Putting a grain dryer in is not, it wasn't that simple because there's other things to go with it. There's a whole logistical change. Um, and that logistical change means you've now got centralisation of 
grain handling. The centralisation of grain handling took us from the cheapest form of grain handling we could think of in grain bags, which I have no love for, in the words of my engineering lecturer, Ian Farron, good, quick or cheap? Well, silo bags are cheap. <laughs> and they're very quick and logistically they're fantastic until they're not. And we've had a good run. We, we'd have put north of 100,000 tonnes through bags, I suspect, over the last 20 years. Um, and we've not had too many real disasters. 2021 sorghum was probably the worst experience we'd had and just because Corellas have started to move in and they've, they've really hammered us. Uh, that and Well, they just open it right up. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they really get into it. Uh, that in the wet season, we actually couldn't get to them because we were isolated. These bags were isolated. We, we physically couldn't get to them. So that was problematic as well. So we got to the point where scaling bags became a real challenge. So all of a sudden, we were being forced into a position because you know, we couldn't execute grain trades in wet seasons. When you've got a lot of grain to move, you start destroying a lot of stuff. So you seem to have the most grain to move when it's the wettest. So then we had a, we were just taking new challenges and we were becoming, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but sort of victim of our own success. The more grain we grew, the more we had to sell. But the reason we were able to grow grain was because of the attention to detail that we could bring. And all of a sudden you've got to turn your business off to go and you know, chase a bin bags out to the roads and you were just losing your attention to detail because you're using the same window that you'd want to be doing, you know, husbandry operations. Now, all of a sudden, you had to use it, had to make the compromise to go and start dragging grain out of bags. And then you're destroying roads, you're buggering up your tractors. Yeah, everything just was going wrong. So we have gone from basically grain bags and grain corp to our own on-farm storage, which is 10,000 tonnes, 11 silos, 1,500 tonnes and, and 350 tonnes, integrating into that a grain dryer and a cleaner. So we've had the dryer running now for 12 months in sort of a make-do fashion. We've put about eight or 9,000 tonnes through that now. Cleaner's still to be set up, as well as most of my handling equipment and the walkways and access. So we really had to build the, the business case around that. And it's not a business case, it's many business cases. You know, you start spending that sort of money, you're not going to pay for it in a couple of years. You're going to pay for it over, you know, a decade Maybe, well, to be honest, the business case, if it was just a, the farm paying for it itself, it's probably closer to two decades unless we grow. So it's, you know, how much grain are we going to have to clean? How much grain are we going to have to dry? What can we pick up on the uplift if, if we can store some grain because we, we don't want to be a forced seller? So you start building all of those things in and that ultimately builds the case around what you've done. And then you've got to bring in the, the, the wet harvest scenario or the wet growing season scenario, to be honest, because from 2021, 22, the market was actually having a real trouble getting grain off farm. Um, and so there were some significant premiums out there if you could sell into it. That's problematic when you're trying to drag it out of bags and get it to market. So it's all those little things that you add up and you don't know when they're going to come or in what proportion, but at some point they actually do turn up and, and there is money in it. But... It's the sort of thing where you don't know if you're entering it at the right time. I mean, from a purchasing perspective, we didn't get it completely wrong, but it would have been far cheaper to be doing it in 2018 and 19. And to be honest, I'd have had more time to do it too. <laughs> Hindsight's a beautiful thing though, isn't it? Isn't it? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. So look, we're most of the way into that now. The silos are up. The electrics, you know, when you start doing a fully integrated site, electrics become a big part of that. And to be honest, power management too. So we don't have three phase. It'd probably, I don't know, out of guess, half a million bucks at least to upgrade the line back to where there's three phase. And then that would rely on us not having to do any upgrades from there back to the substation in town. So you could be talking anywhere from one to two million bucks to get power supply. Power off the grid's not cheap either. So we've gone with gensets and they're diesel. Everyone keeps asking about solar. The amount of solar panel we'd need to put in for something that's used for maybe six, eight weeks of the year just wouldn't justify it. Unless we could get a decent feed in back into the, the grid. And we we really didn't even explore that because then you still need the backup of a genset because it'll be a cloudy day and you'll need to be doing stuff and you just don't have enough juice. So, yeah, we've, we've got two gensets, one for high load, one for low load. We can run them both together if we're running the whole plant. We didn't want to get to the point where we, we were having to make too many compromises. That comes with expense. So we've got three separate lines. 
one for in-feed, one for out-feed, and one for drying and cleaning. And we've already used all of that capacity, despite the fact we're only half built. We have had grain coming in, we've had grain going out, and we've been drying simultaneously. So it looks like that decision's been justified at this point. Let's see how it goes over the next 10 years, though. <laughs> we'll watch closely. I'm glad you covered off on the power piece because that, that was going to be one of my key questions. But what about also like opportunity to collaborate with other farmers? Like, was that a, a scenario you'd looked at in terms of, well, do we build a bigger facility? What would it look like bringing other people in? Or was it more just something that it made more sense to own it solely as a private enterprise and, and control it that way? We really hadn't considered going in a collaborative space uh, at this point. Our business is a bit weird, which... You know, again, don't mean to sound arrogant, but we're doing a fair bit of stuff that isn't conventional. We've attracted a few people to do a bit of summer cropping. Some come, some go. Some have hung around for a while. I think the the issue with the collaborative exercise around drying, particularly as we understand it, is everyone's going to want it at the same time. And then so what's the argument there? How long can you store it? Who has to wear the risk of their grain not being put through the dryer? Or, you know, it, it it's a bit like contract harvesters. They're great. And then if you've got a shared piece of infrastructure, yeah, who gets in that line and what does that look like? So that's probably where we pulled up and it's going to take some serious management. I mean, I'm into it at the moment, just trying to figure out what are the procedures and protocols? Would that mean it's got to then be its own standalone business between those entities? It would have got very sticky. And Mm. if we had people who... And this isn't to say that we don't have a good relationship with our neighbours or don't have a problem with our neighbours. It would have taken a better relationship, though, and a closer working relationship on smaller things to have actually led us to that path, though, I think. Because it's a big step. You're talking, you know, it's a substantial capital outlay. You can't afford for it to then all fall apart because you can't agree on how to manage it, can't agree on OHS procedures, can't agree on, you know, what does site access look like. We're spending some serious money just on redundancies because you can't afford for it to go down in the peak of harvest. That's its ultimate yeah. role. It's it's there not, you know, it's a, it's a substantial spend for, to be honest, six or eight weeks worth of, of working time in a year. How have you guys in your business allocated the different roles with who owns what? And has it been really clear from the beginning or was it something that similar to the different operations of summer and winter cropping? You started to start small and then yeah, clear it out and get some more structure around as time's gone on. Well, probably in the midst of that again at the moment. When it started out, so my wife, Trine, she was in the business and then my brother-in-law, Bruce, came in. I was still at Marcus, so we're, we're 20 odd years ago now, or 20 years ago now, and we'd been long distance for quite some time. So Bruce was still here. Trine then went out, uh, worked with NAB for a while. And then there was a decision sort of at the end of Marcus, well, how does this play out? I promise I'm getting to your point of your question. And Train's parents actually offered me a job at that point and Train stayed with the with the bank. And that was in part because of the physicality of the job and, you know, I could sort of throw my hand at anything. So I came back in and then Bruce and I have had a, a good working relationship. We've we've always had a petitioning of roles. Uh, it's probably never been super defined in the – well, it's not been formalised, shall we say. It's just been Bruce does – marketing and procurement and looking at, at crop shaping, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the crop shaping's one that we probably used to work a bit harder on together. And then as the system has come to its where we sit at the moment, it's Bruce pulls together a plan and we discuss what are our options because, you know, there might be seven, eight, ten different versions through the year depending on how the season's progressing, particularly coming into sowing. Katrina, my wife, she's been doing. She's been involved in the finance. Obviously, it's a natural fit for her for a long time. But she's she's also very keen in the agronomy space. So she looks after our our summer crop agronomy, and yeah, again, it was a space that we weren't occupying. And similar with Karina coming in around admin, that was very much a succession between Janelle, my mother-in-law, and Karina. And so there was a, a transition there. Jim's always well, pretty well since we've since Bruce and I've been in the business. Jim's always been there, but he hasn't really – he's sort of been learning to, to offload, I guess, some of the, the decision-making and the work to, to Bruce and I. He started at a young age and, and didn't see the need to be master of every every domain until he was ready to expire. He was quite happy to, to hand that off, I guess. He's always been there when we either can't agree or, or need some guidance. 
but no, look, it, it it's worked pretty well. It's it's reasonably you know by consensus. I think we're getting to the point where next generation is not too far from knocking on the door, so we need to get a bit more structure and formality around it. It's worked well to this point. We do see ourselves as being able to go further together, and so yeah, it hasn't been formalised. I suspect it needs to start getting a bit more rigour around it and. Yeah, particularly now as we've got more people who are working with us who aren't family, we need some more clarity for them and we need the ability for them to to see some career you know, career progression as well. Yeah, it's, well, it sounds like a really kind of healthy relationship that you guys are managing on farm at this point in time, but also the, the importance of having complementary skill sets and actually going, well, yeah, that's your strength. So let's just let you focus on that. It's not all beer and Skittles, but no, you don't have to tread on each other's toes. So I actually didn't even touch on what I do, which maybe I don't do anything. I'm not sure. The interviews. Ask <laughs> questions. I'm just a media tar. <laughs> no, no, no. That's Matthew Norrie. Sorry. I needed to throw him under the bus. Uh, you can keep that <laughs> one in. No, it's... We go further because of the specialisation, though. I'm, I know more about grain markets because of what I hear from Bruce than me having to go out and do my own stuff because he's further into the weeds there. So I my, my knowledge is improved by the fact that he's got access to better knowledge or had more time to think about it. I'm better at understanding the weather because I've had the time to actually do it. I don't need to be worrying about have I got this product, where's it coming from, what's its cost. Conversely, Bruce doesn't need to worry about, well, have we got the spare parts for this machine? Who's going to be the operator? How do we run it? Who's going to learn how to operate it? Because you don't need to be across everything, and I'm not I'm not second-guessing what Bruce is doing. He's coming to us with information. We, you know, he wants to let us know what he's doing. I'm doing the same thing if he's talking about machinery. And we're building business cases where they're needed. You know, doing transactional grain trades, probably not so much a business case. It's just this is the read of the market at the moment. This is why we're... What I'm thinking, this is the information I've got. From a, a machinery perspective, it's, right, this is the timeline we've got. These are the features that are on this machine. This is what we think we can do with them from a water use efficiency perspective. This is their payback, et cetera, et cetera. And then there'll be a consideration around in-kind benefits that we can't actually put a, a financial metric to at the moment, but we can anticipate that they might come. And so that helps you know, other people understand the the line of thinking within the business around right this is why we're buying this piece of machinery it's not just well that's shiny and new and big it's right no this is the point of purpose having to justify those decisions <laughs> oh well you can justify anything if you want to you know just change the assumptions <laughs> with your finger on the pulse and in the areas and the conversations or the types of people that you have conversations with, what are some of the things that you've got on your radar for that progression of the business over the next five to 10 years and what you're seeing as opportunities for yourself down there in and around the parks area, but yeah, specifically to the grain industry? That's a good question, I I like that one. I'll, yes, I'll put that on that's what we're after. There's only so much more we can do from a detail perspective. I'm, I'm, and what I mean in that is I'm starting to run out of stuff to consider and bring in, particularly at a scaling level. If I was still doing a lot of the running around, it's probably a bit easier to bring some of the more detailed things in. My perspective is we need to be looking at how we can generate cash flow more consistently and not have to have rainfall on our farm to generate cash flow. We are very much, we've been limited to that. We don't have a, a, you know, there's no feedlot sitting somewhere off the side. There's no rain, there's no irrigation license elsewhere. We live and die by the, the rainfall that we get. And the, and the seasonal conditions that we've got. So that's part of the reason for the grain handling facility as well. If we can do a bit of contracting either in storage or you know, drying, cleaning, et cetera, et cetera, we're not sure where those, those opportunities take us. I think value add, I don't know where value, well, cleaning and drying will be value adding in and of itself, but looking more up the supply chain for where that, that what's not being serviced that would assist the market, you know, is it better, you know, more defined quality parameters within a product to hit specialist things that can allow us to take a AH9 grade or something and, and you know, figure out what else do we do with it. Uh, at the moment, we tip it down the spout to domestic users and they turn it into something else. They're clearly extracting a premium from there somehow because they're not buying it for no reason. Is there something else that we could do with that, be it grading, be it cleaning, whatever? I think... 
where are the other opportunities within the farm side of things to continue to improve our productivity? I think the the precision side of planting, being able to manipulate at the plant level based on where you have a gauge for where the season's going. So, again, comes back to that go-no-go no go stuff that we were talking about. There's a stretch in a crop between it being a plant and it being a, a crop. If we can manipulate plant population, so if it's a dry season, we mightn't stop planting. We might just plant a really thin population and just let it be a group of plants. Don't interact with each other too much and see how that goes. But that's, I'm going to get into the weeds here. The better we've got at farming, the more extreme the drought's got to be for it to really hurt. The problem mm-hmm. with that is now the decision to not pull the trigger gets rarer and rarer. You know, if it was one in 10 where you've got to say, no, I'm not going to grow anything, well, that's, um, you know, you're at least getting, you know, a couple of chances to say no. Well, you're going to get four chances, according to John Woods, if I've got 40 crops in me. But if it's one in 20, well, was this the year to not sow or was it in five years' time or do I get two together and then not see one for the rest of my my life? And my point there being that as we get better with water use efficiency, we need less and less rainfall to, to at least cover our variable costs. You know, it's a pretty rare event now when you don't pull the trigger to go and plant a crop, at least in our winter cropping scenario. Summer crops are slightly different. So that decision-making thing gets a bit trickier. So I've got off topic there and I know I have Ollie. No, and I think it's all, it's really interesting to think that as you've got better, it actually becomes slightly more complex in the sense of... Oh, yeah, it becomes hard. You're reducing the volatility of kind of the unknowns, but then at the same time too, yeah, there's like a a very interesting and grey inflection point between go and don't go and... It's wild. And as I say, when we when we started out and looking at this stuff, it was probably more like one in seven. And now, like our water use efficiency, uh, probably average about 14 kilos 10 years ago in cereals, and our canola is starting to approach that now. Not, It's not averaging that, but it's, you know, some years it's better, some years it's it's under. It really depends on how, how big a hit the crop's taken. No, the, the canola really has, it's it stepped up. Cereals, to be honest, have been a bit disappointing. I think in part that's though a function of management too. We've the money's been with canola, so we've really focused on managing that. The cereals probably need a bit of bit of love now too, and we can't afford to drop the ball on the canola while we're doing it. You're an avid reader. I'm a bit of a podcaster that just asks questions, but I'm interested here to flesh you out a little bit on this. Tell me about yeah, like I was saying, I find it so beneficial. It's nearly like I'd say an hour of mentoring when it comes to chatting to different people and getting to ask questions and flesh their brains understand kind of what they're doing but it comes from a genuine point of interest of things i'm trying to work out or understand but and then the beauty of having this is that it's the relatability of something that you say well someone else might grab a piece there or a piece there and and i think that's where it becomes incredibly powerful of the knowledge sharing yeah no and i wouldn't disagree with you there i mean matt ridley writes on this sort of how things evolve and innovate that's the great advantage of the urban environment the ability for ideas to intersect with each other and then be synthesized because people bring disparate knowledge to a thing and then people talk about it and it gets it just gets into the melee as where when we're isolated out here on farm you don't get that interaction and so i suspect a part of the differential between your where you've landed and where i've landed you're interacting with a lot of people so you get to hear a lot of ideas and you're incorporating them you sleep on them that's how it works I'm not, and particularly when I was doing a lot more of the operational stuff, I'm not reading nearly as much at the moment because my brain is pretty well fried trying to learn all the shit that I need to learn. Oh, look, it's 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 been a whirlwind, a reasonably capable guy, but I, yeah, it's a trip, this project management thing. And just picking up some of the stuff that you've got to do and you just don't know what you don't know until you get there and you go, right, is that fit for purpose and or not? I've been really fortunate. I've got a great team who've helped me, but I'm digressing. Whilst we're, whilst we're digressing. Mm. So I, I guess I pick up a lot more of that stuff through podcasts and through reading, but it's also that long-form stuff, that repetition being, on, it depends on, on your learning style as well. I don't particularly like short-form podcasts. I prefer a long-form podcast where people can really get into the nitty-gritty and, and, and follow it. But any podcast gives more detail than what a news grab does yeah. as well. 100%. I don't buy bite sizes. I need to actually 
be exposed to more of it. I enjoy reading. I find I get more out of it. You can get into a bit more of the nuance of it. But that said, face-to-face is great because then you can start asking questions. You know, if you read it one way, you've got to interpret what someone's giving you as where in a conversation you can actually get clarification. You can ask for examples. You can... I guess you can make the learning a bit more fit for purpose. So I, I, I'll concede your point. You will get further faster uh, in a one-on-one than you will from a book. Yes. I want to, we're going to keep digressing here because the point I'm going to come back to here is asking you about your team because you mentioned them. I just want to ask, are you much of a, a news consumer, like agri-news, rural news, all of that, or no. interesting? No, not at all. Current affairs, I figure by the time it gets to me, if it's important enough, it it's important. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say there's a lot of noise in news, and that doesn't matter if we're talking ag news. There's a lot of column inches that need to be filled. There's a lot of airtime that needs to be filled. And a lot of that, to be frank, is just mm. noise. There are meaningful things that happen, and, and they get they do, they do still get to you. It doesn't matter how isolated you are. You know, It'll be on Twitter. It'll be in a conversation on the phone. It'll be somehow it's going to get to you. And so that's sort of the filter I figure. By the time someone's talking to me about it and it's not gossip, of which I don't do any of that anyway because it's just not interesting, it must be something of substance. And then I might go and look at what is being reported. Yeah. Let's talk about the evolution of the workplace. We've we've chatted about the roles of, let's call them, your management team, which is really the family. Yep. And I find it really interesting. How do you, like get the buy-in of your staff and how do you get people to go, yes, it's a family business. So obviously you guys are very passionate about it as the directors, owners, managers, but how do you get people to buy into the vision, what you guys are trying to achieve and work in a way that's productive and constructive for themselves and also the business? I think communication's a portion of it. I think in all honesty, it's from how I've approached it is there's no job that's too shit that I won't get in and do. Um, That's, been how I've operated for the last 20 years. So I think it's the, it is a team environment. You do get in, you do do the jobs, whatever they are. I guess there's also the communication, why are we doing what we're doing? Why does the detail here matter? What does it ultimately lead to? How does it make it a better workplace? You know, we're not, and also listening not wanting last year's problems to still be next year's problems. Like if you've got perennial issues, people get really frustrated with that stuff and they want to succeed. They want to see the job done well. At least that's been my experience. I won't say we're perfect at it by any stretch of the imagination. I think we, we've got more that we can do with our team to to bring them along for the journey and help them realise a bit more of their potential. I think they, it's there. Obviously, I don't expect them to be as have the zeal that I have for it necessarily because I see it as a bit of an intellectual exercise as well you know don't get me wrong making money is nice but I still see the intellectual side of it and get a, a great deal of enjoyment out of that but just that ability to go wow and I think probably some of the next steps on that is even at points like at the moment our crops are still you know they're not great but go and have a drive around let's see how we sit in the landscape for the effort that we put in what does it mean now, that doesn't mean that I know what that that crop's going to yield that we're looking at that's over the fence, but it can just give you a reference point as to, well, how have we done? And when things are starting to fall over is when you really start to see that distinction between, well, is the effort worth it? And also keeping them in for the long term. You know, we've got, so you said our management team, well, our management team starting to grow beyond the, the, the family. We've got two guys who are, are really stepping into that space who have been with us for five and uh, sorry seven and twelve years now, and they're there's you know they've got people who are now reporting to them um, again the do the doing sort of thing, um, but they understand you know we need to get this done because that's what leads to ultimately uh, harvest at the end of the season, and it's it's making sure that they understand the cycle. But they 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 do they buy into it and. It's because it's important. They've seen the success. They've seen, you know, nearly average eight ton on a triticale crop, which for central New South Wales is a pretty, pretty outstanding exercise. And we've seen some four ton canola. It's at that point where you start to go, yeah, now this we're getting a few things right here, and 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 it's not one person's effort. It is a team that makes a result like that. They also, you know, have to deal with the, the other side of it. When last year we were on the cusp of harvest and just about got washed downstream. So, but. 
they're there to help in that. They're as disappointed when they see the crop get washed away as the rest of us. They know it's what pays their wages and pays the bills and, you know, stops them from, or the, the business from getting a, you know, the next kick along. Can only finance and pay for the stuff that allows us to get a bit further by being able to, you know, grab the success when it's there and they're, they're fully aware of that. So a very simple question and maybe not a, as much of a simple answer, but how are you better off with having a team in your business? We can say how are you better off with your team? People are the hardest and the, the best part of any business is my experience. The hardest in that, you know, they're not a machine, you don't just turn them on and off. They're the best because they bring ideas, they challenge you, and you get to watch people grow. I mean, a machine's a machine, a machine. Like, bloody things break down and that's about as, you know, they're either on or they're off. I enjoy the challenge that, that people bring in the context of challenging my ideas, also wanting to just see them grow. Like, you know, watch watch people who've come in, not with a great deal of experience in agriculture, but they really get where they're, what we're doing here and watching that progress and that attention that they, you know, watching them absorb the culture. And it's not like it's, you know, we're not a cult here, but it's getting that why it matters and why it matters for our business and then hopefully, and I look, I, I'm quite open with our guys and say, look, it's, it's about being able to, if we can do something for our community as well, like if we you know, build the silos, well, all of a sudden there's something else there that we can add some value in. What else can we do? Who else can we bring in? What other skill sets would we like to use in our business that we could either, you know, that can help us so that we've got access to more minds and better hands for those those really critical periods because we, we get it, you know. We do the math on what's a day's delay at the start of sowing worth. What's that cost us? That's not insubstantial. So if you have a breakdown on the first day and you're ready to go, it's a 1% reduction is basically how we budget it across the the entirety of that program that's left to go because you're a day behind. You won't pick it up, though we do leave some slack in there too. And I think that's another part of, you know, the, the, the buy-in is I actually don't want our people to have to think that they have to burn themselves out. Don't get me wrong, they, they work hard and actually getting to stop is, is a challenge <laughs> sometimes. But I don't want the system designed where they have to burn themselves out. So when I'm designing the plant for, for our planting machinery, it's, right, what do we want to budget? What's typical? Right, 8Ks an hour, 12 metres wide. Right, if we've got two of them, we can work to 15 hours a day and we can be over it in the the ideal timing sort of thing. If we get caught late, right, well, then we might put more hours on or we might go faster. But don't budget on doing 12Ks an hour, 24 hours a day. just doesn't work. Burns people out. They know that that's what they've got to expect. I'd actually prefer... People to be home with their families. I'd prefer to be home with my family and not have to stretch that out. But know that we've got the capacity there. That you know, we know that we're going to get late breaks. We know that it's going to get wet. We know that all that stuff's going to go wrong. Let's not start having to have an optimal system where nothing can afford. And it's simple, but it's it's wise and makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because otherwise, then all of a sudden you add the extra pressures and things completely out of your control happen. And then you do. And you do get a few days off. I think the other thing that goes with that is logistics. And I know it's not a people thing, but if your job's easier because it's where you need it, it's how you need it, all the rest of it, the logistics of what grows our business. You can make jobs infinitely harder because it just takes forever to move or it, you know, the gear's not there or whatever it is or it's hard, it's not known. And we can, we've still got room to improve there, but, you know, we've been running on... Once priority for an awfully long time, basically based on uh, logistical efficiency around that. You know, so there's been savings there, but it also means that the job just doesn't take as long. Some jobs, to be honest, still, it takes you longer to get set up than it does to do the job. Yeah. If you can make that easier, oh, it's, it's a function of the things. Like the gears are super efficient. You get out there and you can get your 36 meter or your 40 meter boom spray, and you're doing 20 k's an hour, and the paddock's only 150 hectares. Well, you're not yeah. there for long. You know, a lot of time looking for the product and getting set up to go and do it. <laughs> Absolutely. I can make that easy. Yeah. So, and look, we've still got, we've got a lot of work to do. I think we've got more capacity in our people and I think more capacity than they potentially understand to what they can do and, you know, how they can, you know, better themselves, better the business and ultimately, you know, create a real fist of it. But again, 
we've then got to grow the business so that people feel like they've got something to do too. No shortage of challenges ahead. So let's <laughs> and opportunities. Let's wrap Mark Taylor Swift on the fast five, which we're asking everyone as part of this. It rolls off, doesn't it? Oh, it doesn't. Tell it? me, what was your first ever paid job? Mowing lawns. Oh, actually, no, nah, it would have been stock work. Mum actually relented and gave me a few bucks. We were mothering up, mothering up actually Angora goats. <laughs> My parents had some Angora goats. Memorable. And they had a stud. It, it, yes, but I would have only been all of about five, I suspect, <laughs> or six. What's something you've got on your bucket list? Uh, it was a long time after that to get paid again. I yeah, I bet. Been. What's something you got on your bucket list? I want a hang glide. Interesting. Have you ever skydived well, or anything like that? No, 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 no. But I'm not, I'm not too fussed about those. I, I like the, and then maybe it's all in my head, but you're not powered, so I don't need to worry about an internal combustion engine. Physics keeps you up as long as it doesn't. There's a few, and it'll be quiet, and I really don't do noise. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you've got to convince my wife. It's not me. I'm not oh, the handbrake here. Good luck with that. We'll watch this space. She's a bit more concerned about the absence of an internal combustion engine and, and those things, that's, sir. That's probably fair enough, too. You're a man who likes a question, so here's the, the real chance you get to ask one. What's a question you've got for a future guest? Mm, hadn't seen this one coming. If water use efficiency is a function of crop stress, what are you doing to reduce stress and thereby improve water use efficiency? Okay. I'll have to be a bit selective on who I ask that too, but we'll see. <laughs> okay, two more to wrap. What's your favourite grain-based dish? Uh, to be honest, a good good bread and with a bit of butter, to be honest. It's simple, but it's just, you know, it's good. We had that. You know one that someone said recently as well was they said steak. They said if it's gra grain-fed. Oh, I wish I'd done, I wish I'd done that one. I've got, some, I've got some jealousy on that one. That's a great response. I know, it's a cracker. I never even thought of that. <laughs> and who are three people, past or present, that you'd invite round for your bit of bread and butter? Mm. I'd nearly have to say Epicurious because, um, you know, that's a, that's a school of philosophy and started under Epicurious. And he was very much about keeping... The simple things in life, simple. So don't don't indulge, because how do you live without the indulgence once you've exposed yourself to it? But three people I'd have. But yeah, okay. So let's let's put Epicurus on the list. I'd actually, I'm, gonna, I'm not pissing in his pocket. Oscar Pierce. I enjoy a chat with Oscar, and I enjoy our intellectual sparring. Uh, Oscar being from Grail from Northern New South Wales, who you've probably already had on the podcast. I'd say, and if not, you should have. Matt Ridley's another good one. So intellectually, uh, yeah, really good thinker out of the UK, member of the House of Lords. He's done some really great research on really great writing and, and thinking, I should say, on optimism and why things are better than we're often told. It's not that we don't shouldn't cover the downside, but yeah, he'd be he'd be a fascinating person to have a meal with as well. And I think he and Oscar that watching that dynamic could be fantastic. Interesting. I want to go look him up and. It sounds like a, it's going to be a very in-depth, detailed, and I can tell you if I was a fly on the wall, I wouldn't understand half the things that were being said because they're way too smart for me. <laughs> All I do is hold on. Just listen and hold on. I hope you can keep up with what's yeah, going on. Yeah, I don't even think I'd – yeah, I'd have nothing to hold on to. So. <laughs> You'll be fine. You're only young. You're only, I've got all this grey hair that's you – yeah, know, it's just experience. Yeah, I'll hold on to that. So we'll see. <laughs> Mate. Thank you so much for coming on and having a chat. We did have to break it over two parts because we got sidetracked. But no, thank you for you're, you're making too, the time. You're too busy. <laughs> I hate that word. <laughs> prioritisation is what it is. It's yeah, about, I was going to say it's disorganised, isn't it? No, no, it's because you couldn't prioritise me. Mm, I'm sorry. Technology let us down at the beginning just, and we can make up some other lies. That's just me pushing you under a bus there. It was great. I really enjoyed oh, it. Oh, that's right. I'll edit it out. So. <laughs> I'm the keeper of the cards here. <laughs> this is my problem. I prefer to do a live cross. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll leave them with you. So. <laughs> Thanks for that, mate. 
Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grain sector. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.